All right, as the children come forward and get ready to uh, go back and have your lessons and learning and having fun and who knows else what's going on back there. Josh, what you guys got going on and who do you, who do you have first? I have sprouts. Sprouts? And we're talking about Jonah. Jonah. All right. We just finished talking about Jonah in here. And Kyle? David the Psalmist, and you have the kids, right? Great. Well, we're going to pray for you guys as you go. Hope you have a good time back there and learn lots, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the children. We are grateful for, um, Lord, we're just grateful that you have allowed us to see so many children here at the church. And Lord, we pray for them as they go back and learn about David the psalmist and about Jonah. And Lord, that they would, through these stories, get a picture of you and your love for them and a desire that you have for them. Lord, we're grateful for those who are teaching. We pray that you would help them to speak clearly and that they would be understood in what they're sharing and that they would enjoy each other back there. And Lord, as we get ready to dive into the word this morning, I pray that your spirit would move through this room and would open our eyes and touch our hearts, help our understanding, increase our faith. Help us as we go through this journey not just through this book, but in our lives to know you more and to respond to you in a way that you can transform us more into the likeness of Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen. I want you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, yeah, we have gone through, we've, we, we're working our way through Nehemiah, and uh, on, uh, chapter 6 is where we left off last week. Chapter 7 is basically a census, it's a bunch of names and numbers, and I just uh, didn't want to go through a bunch of names and numbers. But chapter, chapter 8, we're actually going to get to see them um, after they have completed the wall, because remember in chapter 6, they completed the wall after so much opposition, so much ridicule and mocking, so much intimidation and even threats of war was against them. And they, am I hearing something? Is this me or? Oh, my wife doesn't want to hear me. She wants to listen to some. <laughs> That's okay. So let's Let's see if we can't get back on track here. Uh, yeah, they have gone through so much. 52 days from the time they started the wall, building, rebuilding the wall, 52 days they completed the wall. And so here in chapter 8, we're, this is probably six, seven months later. If we look at the timelines and, 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 and what all the, um, the verses say. But let's look at chapter Eight, verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses here and begin talking about that. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front 
of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadad, Zechariah, and Meshulam on the left hand, which will be for this point on talked about the people that are on the stage with Ezra. I'm not repeating those names again. Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And when they bowed, and, they, and then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Hakub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Anariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, which from this point on will be called the guys who were in the crowd with all the other people, <clears throat> planned uh, and explained the law to the people while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. There's a lot of things in this first, ver- first few verses right here in 1 through 8 that we see, honestly, in, our t- in, in, in a lot of our worship services. We see the opening of the book. We see the person, it says there, that Ezra is up on a podium. It's kind of like this platform is the podium. It's big enough for like 14 people. Okay, that's, that's how many people are up there. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine if there's 14 people up here, Ezra's up there, you know, he's reading and he's above, uh, stationed above them. There's a lot of things there. The people, they, they stood, there's a lot of churches when they say, we're going to read for the book. If you, if you would stand with me at the reading of whatever passage, there are churches that still do that. There are churches who have people behind with the person who's actually bringing the word. There'll be people standing. I don't know if you've been in churches where there's like rows of chairs on either side. And there are people sitting in those chairs, and some of them might be worship leaders, some of them might be different ministers or something, but all of those guys are there to help the pastor, because they're the guys back there that are going, tell it, amen, preach it, and they're they're the guys who are helping the pastor on. If you've ever been in those churches, and I have, it's incredibly uh, energetic, it's incredibly encouraging, but those guys are back there encouraging the pastor, excuse me, to, to preach. The people came to hear the word. Uh, when they prayed, everyone said, amen. If you, sometimes even I have done this where we would say, uh, and, and all of God's people said, amen, right? So, so you know, all, there's certain aspects of, we see as we're reading through this that are commonplace in our worship services. Some of the things that aren't commonplace, some of the things that aren't what we see. And the one big one is like six plus hour worship service here. This, if you notice, it said early in the morning and through, through midday. That's at least six hours, possibly eight hours. Those are long. I don't know how long you have sat in through a service and all. I have, I have sat through services that have been four and a half hours long. 
When I was in India, I participated in one that was five hours long. And, and, and you know, typically, they're kind of like this. They're not just picking a passage, preaching on a passage and all that. Typically, there's several speakers or there's just a long thing they're going through. Like when we did in India, when we preached the... Uh, the seven sayings of Jesus all at once. You know, one guy got up and did one saying and another guy got up and did a saying and another guy got up on and on until seven preachers got up there and there was music in between and all that. You can imagine that would stretch a service out pretty long, especially if you try to tell preachers, you got 15 minutes and they're looking at you going, sure. 15 minutes, I'll give you 15 minutes and more. And so, I mean, those things just just happen and so this it's it's here they're there it, it's not typical that we would have a long service but here they're having this went on a big part of the day but there's three things I want us to there's three things I want us to see at this number one the people wanted to hear the word of God okay but and before I get started let me just say this the last verse of chapter seven is important I want you to look at that. The last verse of chapter 7. That's going to help us understand some things as we go through this. The last verse of chapter 7. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. All right? Big impactful statement there. Everybody's going to walk out of here with their lives changed. All this really does is kind of give us a date of what's going on here. And this is the beginning of one of Israel's most important feasts. It's the Feast of the Tabernacle. The beginning of the seventh month was the Feast of the Tabernacle, or the Feast of the Booths, as some they call it. We're going to see why here in a little bit. But this is something where the, during these feasts that people did come together, and they did have long readings of the Word and things like this. But if you remember, it's, it's been a while. I mean, they've been in captivity. Who knows what? Ezra went there trying to reinstate some of these things, and there was always some kind of pushback from the enemies around them. They did not want Israel to be reestablished. They did not want Israel to come back to what they used to be before. And so here, it's the, beginning of the, it's the beginning of the seventh month, and the people came together, and they wanted to hear the word of God. All right, I, I, It's not just that they came together for this festival. Look at how they responded. They, 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 they bowed down in worship. They participated with amens. It said that they, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It talks about how they stood there as the man, as Ezra was reading the word. They wanted to hear the word of God. They wanted to hear. And it, it's, not, it's not like, I mean, today we, we, we open up the word here. Everybody has this book in their home more than likely. And it's, everybody probably has multiple copies of this book in their home. At that time, they had a scroll that they brought out and they read from. And it wasn't like everybody had a copy of that scroll in their house. And even if they did, that many of them could not read it. So they had to have it read to them and they had to have it explained to them. So here, but, but, but they were willing to all day long participate in this this service. The second thing I want to see is their reverence for the Word of God. They wanted to hear the Word of God, and they had a reverence for the Word of God. They stood up at the reading of the Word. They participated with amens and worship and, 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 and all that. So it wasn't they worshiped the book, because the third thing here is that they were, the, the reading of the Word pointed them to God. 
And it's important that we get that because there's too many times when we read things like, well, we need to have reverence for the Word of God. Yes, we need to have respect for the Word of God. We need to look in awe of this Word of God, but we don't need to worship this book. We do, but this book points us to God. And that's what Ezra's doing here is as he's going through, as he's beginning to, as he's beginning to read from the Word, he's pointing them to God, back to God. And all that God had done as, he's, as they're reading the Torah. But, but, but here's what's happened. Here's how the people respond once they hear. And, and, and it gives us an indication that there has been some time since they've possibly heard this sto- these stories in the Torah. But verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. All the people were weeping when they heard it. Now, I don't know if you sat down and tried to time yourself reading through the first five books of the Old Testament. It takes a little while. Uh, when, when, when I Googled it, how long does it take to read through? There were people who said, oh, it took me about 15 hours. I'm going, yeah, right. Some people said 20, some people, you know, they talked about never made it through. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that just had these comments. But on average, it, it just takes a while to read. Some people, the book of Genesis along three to five hours. All right? Uh, when you start getting bogged down into some of the other, you know, the, the laws and the legal language and stuff like that, it might take a little bit longer to work through because I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'll start reading it and then about three verses, I go, what did I just read? I had to go back and reread it again because I just kind of get lost in all the, 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 the different things that are going on there. But, but it, they did not make it through the whole Torah this day, but they made through enough They made it through enough for them to see their condition before God. Through Genesis, possibly into Exodus, they made it enough to where they started. And and, and get a load of this. Possibly could they have been mourning because they did make it through end of Genesis and into Exodus and saw the people under captivity enslaved by Egypt and just seen Their people just recently coming out of captivity in Babylon and putting two and two together of why that happened. Could it be that they saw, wow, this is hitting close to home. This is very real. And and, and, and all the things that happened, as as they read through it, they heard the, 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 the story of Noah and how God was judging the world and Noah and his family were able to escape because they believed in God. Everybody else was destroyed. Going through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into, the, into Egypt, and then through the desert, through being brought out of Egypt and through, into the desert and the, toward the promised land and, and saying, ah, we don't want to go in there, even though there's two guys that say that's where we need to go and 10 guys who are saying, nah, the people are big over there. We're, we're going to get destroyed if we go in there. And because of their unbelief of what God had provided for them, they wandered the desert for 40 years. Do you think maybe that might have been what had brought them to a place of mourning? But why would Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites say, wait a minute, let's not get, this is a holy day. Do not mourn or weep. Look at verse 10. He says, then he said to them, then 
Nehemiah and them said, Go and eat the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate the great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Back in Leviticus, and if you want, you can turn there in Leviticus 23. If you're not, you can just jot it down. Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to read just a couple of verses here to let you, let you know why they're not supposed to mourn. They're actually commanded in Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 41. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days of the year, and it shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born of Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I am the sons of Israel who lived and brought you up out of I am the Lord your God. Actually, I left out verse 40. Look at the last part of verse 40 up there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They're commanded. This, 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 this festival they're doing, they're, they're, they're staying in booths for seven days. They're rejoicing for seven days. The purpose of this, again, is to draw their attention to God. I am the Lord your God. He's taking this, this thing that they're doing, living in booths for these seven days, is a rejoiceful thing. Why? Because it is pointing back to a time when God delivered them from Egypt and provided for them in the difficult times of the desert. And they're saying, rejoice. Rejoice for these seven days. And, and it also says, that, and eat for yourself and drink for yourself and provide for those who don't have those things to do that. He's, he's, he's turning their attention from just their, you know, doing things for themselves to doing things for others around them that have need. So again, the, the attention is to God and to what God would have us to do is to have our attention turned to others who are in need. And he's doing that with this festival here. And in Nehemiah, he's the, 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 uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and them are just saying, do not mourn. Do not grieve. It is a time to rejoice. Let's remember back to what happened. Let's think back. And, and, and look at this verse. We, we, we keep coming back to this at the end of verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many times do we keep hearing this word, the joy or the joy of the Lord? Even last week, I brought it up again where the, the joy that they're talking about here is not something that you and I can muster up. It is not something that, you know, if, if you're into fantasy football like I am and my teams win, boy, I'm happy, I'm joyful. But if my teams lose, eh, I could care less, you know, I'm, I'm all right with that. It doesn't ruin my day. But what is it that in the times of difficulties, whether it's suffering uh, whether it's health or finances or relationships, what is it that is going to help me still experience the joy that we're commanded to experience in our lives, to be joyful even in those difficult times? You and I can't muster that up. I don't care what our circumstances are. We can't do that. The only way that's going to happen, it comes from Jesus. When Jesus said, these things in John chapter 15, these things I am speaking to you, talking to the disciples, these things I am speaking to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. 
And I want you to think about the time he's telling them this. He's telling them this leading up to the cross. That my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. What are these things he's talking about? He says, these things I am speaking to you. If you just look at the first 10 verses, there's a lot throughout that he's spoken to them. But even if you just go back 10 verses in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, all throughout there he says that if you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you will abide in me, my word will abide in you. If you abide in me, my love will abide in you. He's talking about all of these things. And then in, chapter, in that same chapter, just a few verses later, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy might be in you. How does his joy get in us? When we are abiding with him. Not when we're out there trying to muster up happiness or success or joy or anything like that on our own. That doesn't come. You might be happy for a moment, but what happens in the midst of difficulties? Do do we set aside this commandment to be joyful and all that? Well, I'm going through a hard time right now. I'm not going to have joy. No. We are still to. Why? Because we don't take our eyes off of him to look at our problems. We continue to fix our eyes on him. He will be the one to help us through the problems that we have. It is through him that we can experience the joy, not anything that anyone does for us. Listen, this morning, I was pretty excited. I got a basket up here. Thank you so much, church, for cookies and cards and all sorts of stuff for pastor appreciation. I know that I I can speak for the other guys. We so much appreciate it. And um, I was actually told I couldn't eat those cookies. And I said, watch me. I I almost brought them up here and used them as a sermon illustration, but I couldn't find a sermon part of the that I could illustrate eating cookies with. So... Actually, I probably could have manna given from God. and all. Anyway, um, that brought me joy. And that's, and that's a good thing. But even if I had not gotten that, I can still experience joy. That increased, that, that gave me a feeling of happy and a feeling of appreciation and a feeling of, of, of joy. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about his joy being in us and our joy being full is that we are, when we are abiding in him, when his love is abiding in us, when his word is abiding in us, then no matter what goes on, think about what he's telling these people, the experiences that you've had, the Babylonian captivity and what you've come out of, the difficulties you've experienced. Just think about the previous you know, those 52 days you were building the wall and what was happening to you, the, the ridicule and the mocking and the, and, and the intimidation, the threats of war, and, and then all sorts of things. Even last week, we saw where they were trying to kind of uh, negotiate with ne- uh, Nehemiah and then manipulate a story to lie about what was going on there. And all of these things have been going on. You can still experience the joy of the Lord. And here it says... Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people down and just said, For the day is holy, do not be grieved. And everyone went around doing what, God had, what they had been commanded to do in the Scriptures, but also in the interpretation of the Scriptures, going out and help serving other people. And then we come to this part in, in verse 13. And then on the second day, This is the second. The first day is pretty big right there. I mean, there's a lot has happened that first day. The second day, the heads of the father's households on all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra to describe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They're going to go through it again. 
And they found written in the law how the, word, how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches and myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of other leafy trees and make booths as it is written. So the people went out and, bought them and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof or in the courts or in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. We saw earlier when we read in Leviticus there that this was to be done for every generation so that the children could learn about and remember about what they had been through and how God had brought them through that difficult time and provided for them while they were in the desert. They built these booths. Basically, it's nothing but sticks and leaves. They're just these. And I imagine they were, they were made that way as a protection from the sun while they were in the desert and, 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 and all that. And it was to be an ongoing part of their, separ- of, of their celebration to live in booths, to participate in the Feast of the Tabernacles, and to remember what God had done for them, to remember God's provision for them, where he brought them from and how he provided for them while they were in the desert. They found that, they they heard that, they found that. It says here, it says here that the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. Now, It doesn't mean they had not participated in the feast. They had. Through that time, throughout all the Old Testament there, they had been participating in the feast for the most part. But they had not participated, it sounds like, either one of two things, in making the booths and living in them for themselves, of that part of the feast, or they had not rejoiced as much as it says here, there was a great rejoicing. That, the way that sentence is worked out there, it could be one of those two things. I tend to believe it's actually both to where the booths they had not done for so long since the days of, of, of Joshua. They had not lived in the booths, but they had not also rejoiced as much because they had, if you'll read back through the Old Testament, not just in this, but Israel had gotten to a pattern of just following the rules, checking the boxes, and... Man, how often do we get caught in that rut? How often can we get caught in the rut of, well, I haven't had my quiet time. I better have my quiet time. Instead of looking at it as, man, I got to get with God and get refreshed and get challenged and get, you know, get convicted and get encouraged and get whatever. I need to get with him for this. Not, I got to have my quiet time. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Check. I got to go to church. That's what Christians are supposed to do. Check. I got to give some money to the church because that's what we're supposed to do. Check. And you just check the boxes. And Israel, we see that. That's the way Israel was. As throughout their history, they just got to a place where it was a checking of the boxes of what they were supposed to do. But now, as they see, as they have just gone through the Babylon, I have no doubt they're sitting there. They're seeing the, 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 uh, coming out of the Babylonian captivity as they're reading back and they're looking back at coming out of Egypt. They're seeing the correlation there of the people not responding to God when God asks them to do something or tells them to be his people or anything. They, they, they start doing their own things. They start f- falling further and further away from God, and they're seeing themselves in that story. 
They're seeing their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers in that story. The stories that were told while they were in the Babylonian captivity. The stories that were told about Egypt. And when they show up to Egypt, I mean not Egypt, but Jerusalem. When they show up to Jerusalem and they see the way the city is, they're going, man, what? Even the temple is not even built up as great as it was from the first temple. But... When they start connecting the dots, they see this and there is great joy. And then it says in in verse 18, he read from the book of the law of God daily. So each day, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So for seven days, they feasted, they celebrated, they live in the booths. There was great joy. All of these things were happening there. And then there's the eighth day, and it's a solemn assembly. And solemn assembly is, uh, I, I know years ago, I, I, I used to think of solemn assemblies as being one of those things where you come in kind of sad. We've got to have a solemn assembly. You know, there's, there's just a weight. There's, a, there's, there's things that you know you're going to have to deal with. There's sin and, and all this kind of stuff. But actually, solemn just basically what, what it means is to refrain from. It's to keep yourself from something. And what this meant, for, for, for the most part, was to not work that day. To refrain from working. Don't work that day. Let's all gather around. Let's, let's hear from God. Let's pray. Like it would, it, honestly, it would, it's not, we, we would do the same thing as far as refraining from work, but we would also, we, we, it's, it would be the same as if we're fasting and praying. If we come together fasting and praying, that would be like a solemn assembly. You are refraining from something, but not just refraining from something, reflecting on God. You're not just removing something, but during that time when you remove something, you are looking to God. You are Your attention is on him, not on the fact that my stomach is growling, not on the fact that dinner is going to come up after dark or whenever it does, not on the fact that, man, if I can just go to bed right now, I can sleep through this hunger and wake up and throw down several, you know, Chick-fil-A biscuits or something like that. I can just go to town. It's not that. It's to sit down as we're fasting. It's removing something and reflecting on God. That's what a solemn assembly was for. But interestingly, on the eighth day, there's something that is not written here that started happening after the second temple was built that did not happen early in Israel history, and that was this thing called a water libation ceremony. And on the eighth day, they would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would pick up some water and all that, and they would come back up and pour it over the altar. And there were two reasons for this, and we can see in Zechariah and in Isaiah and other places where there's reference to this uh, this, this water being poured out. It, is a, it, it, it was done because of the timing of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was done in thanking God for the harvest and the rain and all that that was given, but it was also looking forward, going into the rainy season because the rainy season was into late fall, winter, early spring in that part of the world. It was a pouring out of almost a prayer of requesting rain for the future harvest as well, for the future crops as well. And so they started doing this. And, 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 and what I find interesting here is that in John chapter 7, I want you to turn there. I need for you to see this. In John chapter 7, we see this story here, and we often wonder why John chapter 7, verse 37. 
And we often wonder, what, you know, it seems kind of odd that this statement is said here like it is, like it, like it is said. But look at what it says in verse 37, Jesus there. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, this is the eighth day of the festival here. This is, Jesus is there uh, talking with them about this, uh, or he's, he's watching them. Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now why would Jesus, I want you, I want you to think about this. Jesus is sitting there watching this. It's the last day of the feast. And I imagine, I imagine what's happening here is they're bringing the water. And, and here's what you need to know. There are Jewish historians who write, if you have never experienced joy in your life, you need to come to one of these water libation ceremonies. They're talking about, if you have not seen this ceremony, and I don't know exactly what it is. They're talking about dancing and singing as the priests are bringing the water up the stairs towards the temple in and, and, and pouring out the water. All the celebration that is going on there over this water. And Jesus is standing there. And he doesn't just stand up and say to a few people, look at what he says here. And cried out with a loud voice. He's crying out loudly. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is just drawing their attention right there in the midst of this ceremony as they're going through this ceremony of the water libation. And, they, and, and as a matter of fact, they're still doing it today. When I looked it up, they still do this ceremony to this day. Is that they come up, they pour this water out, and the people are all excited and happy. But Jesus is saying, man, if you are really thirsty, I am the one. Come to me. Look to me. Focus on me. And of course, the later verse there, it says that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit because as we come to Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit. And it is only through Jesus we are having access to this Spirit. And, 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 and in this story, I can just see Jesus standing up and crying out. And if you look at the later verses, people are having this conversation. Well, who is this guy? Some people are saying, man, he's the Messiah. Some saying, oh, he's a prophet. And, and they're having this conversation back and forth. They're, they're wondering why someone doesn't bring him before the Pharisees. And they're, because they know that when he says this, he's saying more than just, hey, if y'all thirsty, I got some bottled water over here. Y'all come on over here. That's, he's saying more than that. It's, it's kind of like in, in, in a later chapter where he's, when, when he says, you know, I am. And everybody knows he didn't just say, I am. No, he did not just call himself God. He did not go there. And people were all in an uproar. When Jesus said things and people got angry, there were reasons for it. And when he said, when he made a reference to water, he was making a reference to him being the Christ. Nehemiah was trying his best, and Ezra as well was trying his best with the people of Israel, not just to restore and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, but they were trying to restore the people of God back to the things that made God, that honored God, that brought glory to God. Not just checking the box, not just physically appearing before festivals and feasts and doing the right things and all that just because, well, it's the easy thing to do. I don't, I don't have to do.
do all this other spiritual things. I don't have to really give up what I want. I don't have to surrender. I don't have to lose myself in all of this. I'm, I'm still David, and I, I still have my own wishes to do this and to do that, and I know that's not what God wants me to do. God wants me here. Jesus is saying, fix your eyes on me. Come to me. Abide in me. He says this over throughout all places in the scriptures. Come to me. Come follow me. It's always about looking to Jesus. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites and all these guys, when they're out there, they're, they're reading the scriptures, they're explaining to them. Nehemiah and Ezra are pointing their attention to God. In the same ways that the scriptures today point us to what Jesus did, which doesn't stand by itself because it points to the greatness of God. I want us to see ourselves collectively at Redeemer here. I want us to see us in this story as, we, as, we're, as we're seeing the, whatever, what, wherever we are, wherever you are individually, personally, before God, wherever that is, I want you to see yourself. Are you one who's just checking the boxes? Are you just going with the motions? Are you, or are you passionate? Are you like the people who came and were desiring to hear the word of God? Are you like the people who have reverence for the word of God, whose attention was drawn to God? And not just in this service, but throughout the days and, 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 and at work and in our neighborhoods and in the marketplace and in our schools. Is our attention drawn to God or do we wander our attention away from God to deal with tasks that, that we think God doesn't have anything to do with? Because God wants to be involved in everything in our lives. And as we're involved in things, God wants to use us to influence things in those areas. Where are we? Individually, collectively, as a church. How are we doing that? Man, if I knew the answer for all of us, man, I could make a fortune. There are guys out there trying to tell people how to live their lives and do things a certain way, and they're charging money for it and all that. If I had the answer, I'd be out there doing that. But I don't have the answer except this. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We pursue him with all we have. We abide with him and his word and his love. And we continue to allow him to have access to the underneath the carpets we sweep things under or the closets we hide things in. We continue to let him have access to those areas where we think we're getting away with stuff, where we think we're hiding stuff from God. And we let him deal with those things in our lives so that we can draw nearer and nearer and nearer to him and be more Christ-like. That's, to me, that is the best answer I have found in the scriptures. There is no personality test that will help you discover who you are and how you can get nearer to God and all that kind of stuff. None of that, that stuff is going to help you. What's going to help us is as we draw nearer to who God is in these scriptures, as we have reverence for these scriptures, as we draw our attention to God, that is when we're going to have our purpose, our mission. That's where we're going to experience the fullness of his joy it's not going to come any other way. I want you to bow your heads and just close your eyes for a moment. I think part of what Israel was sensing at the time was they realized that those fortifications, what they just spent 52 days building, was not going to protect them from the enemy. 
Because after all, those fortifications were there when Babylon showed up. 150 years earlier or so. And just destroyed the city and destroyed the walls and all that. What happened was a people disregarded what God preferred and what God wanted. Let's not become that people. Let's not become that person. And I know that sometimes this sounds like a, just a continuous record. You hear, you hear me say this all the time, but I cannot, I cannot say this enough. We can learn a lot about God and theology and doctrine and all this kind of stuff, but until we get to a place where we're taking what we know and we're pursuing Christ with it and not programs, not people, but we're pursuing Christ with what we know. Until we get to that place, I don't believe we will experience the fullness of his joy in our life. And I'm still pursuing it. Don't, don't, do not think you're, you're hearing me say, oh, I got the answers, or I'm, I've arrived because I haven't. But I do know this, the scriptures tell us to pursue, fix our eyes on Jesus, to pursue him, to come to him, to abide in him multiple places throughout. How are we doing that throughout our week? How are we pursuing him, abiding in him, fixing our eyes on him in every aspect of our life? Father, I pray that we do not put our faith in the fortifications of our knowledge or our faith into the, how we are building up a program or building up even a church. Father, we see ourselves as being wanderers and even away from you many times. Help us, Father, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to pursue Christ with all that we have. Help us, Father, to abide in him so that he might abide in us and that we might experience his love and the fullness of his joy in our life, that we might be able to in the times of difficulties and struggles and persecutions and sufferings and health in our health and our finances or in our relationships or whatever it might be, be more than overcomers. Lord, I am grateful for your love towards us. Help us to walk in a way worthy of that great love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.